This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Stand by, 15 seconds to air. Stand by, old camera, and videotape. Ready with your opening graphics. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, Don. Stand by, audio, your opening music, and roll tape. Take tape. Dad coached a, a team called Thomas Products up there in Johnson City. We had a little team meeting before practice one day, and he asked all the players, how many of you kids believe in that saying, it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. And of course, all of them sort of raised their hand. I didn't raise mine, I knew the answer. Dad said, well, I don't believe in that. He said, we're keeping score. And when you keep scoring something, you're supposed to try your best to win it. And he was never overly, hey, great game or anything like that. He was, hey, maybe you could have done a little better on this play or that play. I'm probably a little bit like that also. It was the last day of 1989 when he returned to his alma mater, his message full of promise and optimism. 
Oliver Wendell Holmes said, what's most important in life is not where you are, but in what direction you're moving. And we are going to try our best to move in the right positive direction here for Florida football. He liked to call himself head ball coach. And the nickname fit because all Steve Spurrier ever seemed to care about was winning football games. In 89, the 1966 Heisman Trophy winner had just coached Duke to an ACC title. And with a new decade dawning, the hope was that if he could do it in Durham, why not Gainesville? Gator Nation had a great conviction about Steve Spurrier. He was their most, he was leading them to the promised land. The Florida football program had been started in 1906. But while they'd had stretches of success, the Gators had never won an SEC championship. It was a desert out there of football. It was hopeless. In 1949, the guy running for governor, he had two big points on his platform. Get fences to keep the cattle off the highway. And secondly, find somebody to win football games in Gainesville. Living through all those struggles, living through the disappointments, living through Georgia beating us every year, whether it was uh, Buck Ballou to Lindsey Scott or whether it was Herschel Walker putting, you know, a ton of yards and beating us 44 nothing. The mantra then was wait till next year. They hired a guy named Steve Spurrier, and honestly, I'd never heard of him. I remember his first team meeting. He said he didn't care who you were or what you had done. Everyone would be given an opportunity to show what they could do. And he said, we're going to learn how to win on the road, and we're going to beat Georgia. He was here to win championships. And I'm really different as a coach than, than I was as a player. I think maybe as a player, uh, I was really sort of uh, free-spirited or not as intense maybe, but I'm a lot more... Uh, intense, I guess, now as a coach. Tradition and identity had value in Spurrier's approach. So he decided to junk the Gators' gaudy orange uniforms for more classic blue. He ripped the artificial turf out of Florida Field, and he christened the old stadium with a new nickname. He was asking me about Florida Field, and I told him that the original Florida field was drained out of a swamp. And I can remember when you could see it running into the dugout of the visiting team. And a few days later, he said, you know what? That's a good name for that stadium, the swamp. Only Gators get out of a swamp alive. You know, been there, Travis? And one of our big boosters down here says, Steve, we're not expecting too much out of you the first couple of years. But that third year, we think we're supposed to be pretty good in football here at Florida. And I said, well, Mr. McKeith, I'm gonna tell you something. We're gonna be pretty good the first two years. When I got to Florida in 1990, the defense had been third in the nation the year before and returned eight starters. And they had been a defensive team. They'd won a lot of games just with their defense. And now here comes Spurrier and goes, well, we're gonna chuck it around. I gotta find a quarterback. The offense was loaded with offensive linemen, running backs. Eric Rett was here, uh, receivers, Ernie Mills, uh, Terrence Barber, Kirk Kirkpatrick. We, we, had, uh, we had players all over the place. 
Like at Duke, Spurrier would be his own offensive coordinator. And since he saw the game as much as any other coach through the eyes of his quarterback, picking his field general would be his most crucial choice. Shane was number five on the depth chart when we got here in our first scrimmage uh, during spring ball, he didn't even get in a play. And his dad had driven all the way from Mississippi to watch his son get in a scrimmage. And I met him after the scrimmage and I said, oh, my bad, I'm sorry. I played the other four quarterbacks and I'll get to Shane, I, I assure you, the next uh, scrimmage. I was here for two years, didn't play a down. Had thought about transferring. We had the orange and blue game that year. Threw three touchdowns. I guess the rest was history. Sure enough, after impressing Spurrier in the spring, Shane Matthews got the starter's job in the fall. Spurrier goes, well, not only is Shane going to be our quarterback, he'll be SEC Player of the Year. He says that. And who says that? But he, And guess what? He was. Good news is the Gators have the ball. The bad news for Florida. It's at the one-yard line. And Matthews going to throw out of the end zone, going deep for Mills, and it's caught! Spurrier's offense immediately took college football by storm, with the Gators averaging more than 35 points a game, the culmination of decades of innovation. Duke University, my third year in coaching, uh, Coach Red Wilson named me the offensive coordinator. And when I got there, I said, do you have a numbering system, terminology, you want me to call plays? He said, no. He said, we don't have any offensive playbook. You can make it up and call it whatever you like. And I said, this is too good to be true. We sort of do it backwards. Some people like to run first and then try to squeeze them up and throw. We might say, well, let's spread them out, throw it all over the park, and then start running. Gators really moving the ball through the air. Here's the draw play. Touchdown, Florida! But that first year in Gainesville, Florida was put on probation early in the season because of a minor recruiting violation committed by the previous coaching staff. I went and told the team, I said, I tell you guys, if we win the SEC this year, I will always consider you guys the first ones to win it, and we're going to win a bunch of them, and they all believe me, so let's go ahead and win it anyway. And Spurrier steals one in Tuscaloosa. The Gators finished 1990 9-2, the best record in the SEC. I love that 1990 team, and they're the ones that started it here. We took on kind of his nature, uh, that, that swagger, that cockiness that he had. And we loved every second of it. People they call him arrogant, cocky. He's uh, just coach, man. It's a confidence. It's, it's a it's a swagger. Before anybody was really using the word swagger. Now it's it's overused a little bit, but he was hashtag swagger. They're playing Oklahoma State. Well, they kill. Him. And after the game, Spurrier goes, "Yeah, we knew they weren't very good." And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Honesty from a coach." At times, you say stuff, and it speaks of vanity, and it speaks of a lack of humility. Ego, paranoid, cocky, arrogant. Sometimes I dig it, guys, a little bit. FSU, Free Shoes University, that's what's, a low blow. What's wrong with that? 15Z! 15Z! Oh, no! I've been accused of saying things right after games that uh, some people felt like 
was a knock to our opponents, and uh, they were interpreted the wrong way. Never disappointed us. Free country, isn't it? <laughs> Free country. Anybody can form their own opinion about every, everything. Everybody's got their own opinion. I'm not asking everybody to take our side. They can take whatever side they feel best to take. I remember going to Knoxville in 96, went and talked to a bunch of Tennessee fans about Steve, and it was just nasty. Spurrier didn't like it that I'd written that story. He goes, what did you go, find some guys under a bridge to write that story? And I'm like, no, coach, people don't like you. How good do you like him when he's making comments like you can't spell citrus without UT? Like basically saying, yeah, Tennessee's going to win 11 games, but they're going to lose to us and end up in the Citrus Bowl, and we're going to be in a national championship. Stuff like that you can't forget. When he'd say something, you know, Free Shoes University or something, and people would comment on it, and I'd walk behind him and go, well, he, he, really, didn't, he really didn't mean it that way. And then after a while, I realized he did mean it that way. He meant it, you know, just the way he said it. And they loved watching him, if not to like him, it was to hate him. They're playing Arkansas in 96. Werfel dropping back, has protection, throwing a deep ball down the field. It's caught, and it's going to be a touchdown! And late in the game, they let their backup quarterback throw a little short touchdown pass. He's down and as Spurrier's running off the field, there's a there's an Arkansas fan, he's running up, he's screaming at him, you run it up, thug, you're running up, thug, we hate you. And Spurrier just looked at him and goes, we like it when y'all say that. That boy, Tony. He's still, to this day, the most honest guy I've ever dealt with. We're very fortunate, as I said, God's still smiling on the games. The 1990s would bring more change to the South than arguably any period since the Civil Rights Movement. With a once largely agrarian landscape, evolving into a network of growing urban areas. The economic growth in the South in the 1980s and 90s, it's a continuation of trends that have been in effect for a long time. In the 1970s, as the industrial heartland of the United States is really getting hammered by trade policy, by environmental regulations. The industrial belt becomes the Rust Belt. The wealthiest region of the United States all of a sudden is losing its preeminence to this Sun Belt and especially to the metro areas. Partly because of weather, and that summers are now tolerable because of air conditioning, partly because of taxes. Taxes are much lower in southern states. And they are willing to basically pave companies to move there. Against the canvas of the economic boom, the SEC took off as well as the decade took shape under the reins of a new commissioner, Roy Kramer a former football coach who came to the conference office from Vanderbilt and began implementing a bold vision of the future. Arkansas and South Carolina were added to the conference in 1992, which triggered a split in the league to two divisions, six teams in the East and six in the West. And that led to an idea as revolutionary as it was controversial 
a conference championship game. It was completely foreign to the way the game had been scheduled in the past and the way the game had been played. And Roy Kramer told his head football coaches about it, and they were going, oh, wait a minute, you mean if I win all my games, I've still got to win one more to get into the national championship picture? What if we lose? I would suspect the vote would have been about 11 to 1 against it. Not only the, the coaches, the media as well. I can remember several articles being written that this was the end of the SEC. Gene Stallings, the Alabama head coach, walked out of the room. He looked at me and says, Tony, we will never win another national championship in this league. Long before coming to fear that the SEC was going to punch itself out of national title contention, Gene Stallings played for Paul Bear Bryant at Texas A&M and then was an assistant under him in the late 50s and early 60s. His most recent job had been in the NFL when he was hired to coach the Crimson Tide in 1990. You know, my style really is to knock him off the ball and, and I'm not much of a finesse type coach. Stallings looked like the bear, talked like the bear, and seemed like the bear, at least to Alabama fans desperate to win their first national championship since 1979 under Bryant. I want our football team to do good. I want them to play well, and uh, there's a lot of tradition at Alabama. We all grew up Bear Bryant guys. We all had Bryant, Bear Bryant posters in Bryant Hall. We felt like we got the next best thing in Gene Stallings. Yeah, I'll be ready to play. I'd last about one play if I played. <laughs> he treated you like a man. He wasn't standing over you all the time, uh, uh, Mac on managing you, but he expected you to handle your business like a man. And when you didn't, you had to deal with it. During Stallings' first three seasons, he only gained popularity by beating Auburn three straight times. This after Bill Curry had lost to the Tigers in all three Iron Bowls he'd coached. And by the end of the 1992 regular season, Alabama was on a 21-game win streak dating back to early in the previous year. Normally, we're ranked number two. We'll be heading to play for the national title. But oh yeah, by the way, we've added another game this year. It's called the SEC Championship Game. Now we got to play Florida, who we just got drilled by last year. The last time we played this team, they embarrassed us. Alabama had lost 35 to nothing to Steve Spurrier's Gators early in 1991. Matthews gets it away for the end zone. It is caught by And the Gators had gone on to win all seven of their SEC games in Spurrier's second season. His third year, 1992, they'd taken a small step back, but were still good enough to lead the conference's new East Division and secure a place in the first SEC championship game against Bama to be held in a relic of the region's past, Legion Field in Birmingham. Legion Field was our home. It had that raggedy turf, the building was all raggedy, but it was character, you know, that place had a little bit of character. I think a lot of guys went to Alabama knowing that they get to come to Birmingham and play at the historical Legion Field. 
We couldn't find anybody too interested in telecasting the game. And finally, ABC stepped up and I think paid us a little over a million dollars for the game. So here's the Gators' leader, Shane Matthews. If Florida, with its 8-3 and three record, were to win the game, on a little delay on his way back to pass. the conference would lose its chance of having a national champion, a perfect example of what Gene Stallings had been fearful of. We were a defensive-led team, and the way they came out, the success they had, we had not seen all year. Touchdown, Florida gets on the board first. But Alabama struck back with 21 points After the end zone. to take a two-touchdown lead in the third quarter. This game should have been over with at that point. You give us a 14-point spot. Our defense was so solid. We will win a game for you. First down, Matthews. Let's it go down the middle. Got a tight end there. Momentum, uh, you can't see it, can't smell it, can't taste it, but you can definitely experience and feel it. We felt it. They felt it. Everybody in the stadium felt that. We had them on the ropes. I mean, we were down 21 to 7, and we tied up 21 all. Into the end zone. Touchdown, Florida. Willie Jackson. We're going to have to do something to flip the momentum. 325. We'll go into 21-21 time. I told my safety, I'm going to gamble a little bit here. I've made about three or four steps, and I was like a little kid hiding behind someone. He throws the ball, and I'm like, catch it. As Matthews goes back and throws. Intercepted by Langham. He's on his way. I was running in his own like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Alabama wins the inaugural Southeastern Conference Championship game. It stinks that we didn't win that game, but it did change college football by me throwing that interception. If we win that football game, there would have been no other championship games for any other conferences. It altered the landscape. What do you see? Virtually every major conference follows the SEC's lead blocking. Roy Kramer's gamble had been a huge success, and now the SEC championship game had instantly skyrocketed in value. Dennis Swanson, who was at ABC at the time, called me on the Monday after the game and wanted to renegotiate. I remember trying to decide what we would go to ask ABC for, and we found out that ABC was paying close to $4 million for the Rose Bowl. So we thought we should at least get that amount. <laughs> I'll never forget Dennis saying, well, can I have about 20 minutes? <laughs> so he called right back. He said, we'll take it. I said, gosh, we didn't ask for enough. <laughs> Just two years later, the SEC moved the championship game to Atlanta, even as Legion Field will forever summon feelings of nostalgia for the Crimson Tide. I miss the old great lady. I don't know what they're going to do with it. I tell you what, if they ever decide to tear it down, I'm going to see if I can't go get a piece of it because the old gray lady has been really sweet to me. <laughs> the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans would serve as the national title game four weeks later. Number two ranked Alabama now playing the unfamiliar role of underdog against number one Miami, the defending national champions. 
With the experts already saying that a hurricane victory would seal them into history as one of the game's great dynasties of all time. Miami was on another planet from Alabama. You know, one of the great passing offenses uh, in the game against this very plodding, methodical, old-style Alabama team. That first night we went out, we're on the streets, and the Miami players are coming up to us trying to pick fights, you know, trash talking. We're Miami Hurricanes. We're the you. We're this. We're that. Alabama defensive backs are not real men. We're up here, and uh, some of the teams are down here, and they want to try to get to that level. I respect them, but to a point, yeah. That's not, ain't like I'm gonna be scared of them. Here we were sitting on a 22 game win streak with zero respect. Fix another game? Um, a blue out. <laughs> working out of the shotgun. We got after the quarterback. I looked at Gino Toretto, I saw fear. He didn't want no part of that. You could just see it in his eyes. I'm like, this guy, he ain't ready. <laughs> Feel like we are in their heads now. It was fun to watch somebody else have to go up against that defense that I went up against every single day. He said his most um, memorable thing about the game is the ceiling tiles. Because he said he looked at them all night. <laughs> Alabama took a two-touchdown lead early in the third when Gino Toretta got the ball back. Down by 14, to 29. And Toretta intercepted by Teague. George Teague to the end zone. Touchdown. The longer the game went, the quarter Miami got. It took out to a point where you couldn't even get them to talk back to you. Miami had been the team of the 80s and early 90s, built on speed and intimidation. But late in that third quarter, the landscape of college football appeared to shift on one play. Passes away, penalty flag down. Lamar Thomas has got it. Lamar Thomas is on his way. George Teague is after. On paper, George Teague cannot run as fast as Lamar Thomas. But in that moment... Teague is after him and runs him down. Hits the ball. Takes the ball. I had never seen a play like that. Teague's got the ball. And they tackle Teague back up to 12. It was almost like we were stripping him of the pride and arrogance they had coming into that game. It was just, just broken, just, just beaten. It was all over the face. Number two has turned away number one tonight. Alabama defeats Miami. Alabama had won its first national title since Bear Bryant's last championship in 1979. Gene Stallings had joined his mentor in the annals of Crimson Tide history. None of us were even playing football uh, the last time Alabama had won a national title and you actually 
got that wanted. It just it's, it's a feeling that is if you have never did it, you can't you can't understand that feeling. Are you the number one quarterback in the country? Well, I can't answer that. You never thought of myself in that league at all. You know, for the most part of my life, I always just assumed I would go to Ole Miss. For a while, I thought that was the only school that ever existed. These are my game shoes. I looked at some great schools in Notre Dame and Michigan and Florida State, Ole Miss, Tennessee, and Florida. Peyton loved recruiting. He loved it. He had 100 schools. Peyton, I finally had to tell Peyton, Peyton, you gotta, you gotta eliminate some of these schools. But he liked it. I think at the end of the day, I kind of decided, I think I want to stay in the SEC. Still got three tough choices. Ole Miss, well, my, my, not just my dad, just just about everybody in my entire family had gone there. And then uh, Florida, you know, Coach Spurrier, obviously, if you played quarterback during that time, you had to consider them because of what they were doing. Tennessee, I had a visit there, and it was an ice storm in Knoxville. Didn't really have a great tour of, the, of Neyland Stadium, but uh, had a great visit with the people, with students, professors, some fans, uh, and uh, just kind of said, I could be happy in this school if football doesn't work out. Peyton was mature, and you know, you, you gotta let your child make make his own decision. That's a big part of raising kids, is where they, they, they can be mature enough to make their own decisions. Chose Tennessee, and rest is history. Just looking for some of the young players to step forward and sort of earn a right to play in the swamp on game day. Under Steve Spurrier, Florida always recruited well, owing in no small part to the allure of the head ball coach's offense but he also made a point of not trying too hard to get them. You know, he used to have this tape of all the touchdown passes his quarterbacks had thrown. And he'd bring a quarterback and he'd show it to them and you're sitting there and they're, they're drooling. But if they said, well, coach, I think I might go to Auburn, he'd go, all right, we'll just beat you at Auburn. The truth was he was looking for certain kinds of players as much as the top levels of talent. He really didn't get caught up on who was the scholarship guy, who was the, the blue chip prospect. It was about guys that played the way they were coached. And I think that's one of the things that I was able to do well. Chris Doring grew up in Gainesville rooting for the Gators and dreaming of playing wideout like his idol, Chris Collinsworth, living and dying with each game every season. I cried all the time. Buck back third down on the eight. In I referenced that disappointment the Buck blew to Lindsey Scott. It had such an impact on my life. In the 94 SEC championship game, I caught the game winner against Alabama with just a couple minutes left. 
the first person to come up and interview me says, hey, my name's Buck Ballou. I said, no offense, but I friggin' hated you when I was a kid. Doring was a talented high school receiver, but no Division I scholarships came his way as a senior. I walked on at Florida originally, so here I am all of a sudden starting for my, my childhood favorite team. The Florida Gators trailing Kentucky 20 to 17. It'll be third and 10 from the 28-yard line with eight seconds remaining. Werfel dropping back to throw, pops and fires the ball over the middle. really kind of changed my life and changed my trajectory of, of uh, my playing career. Even today, wherever I go, uh, people come up to me and they tell me, hey, I know exactly where I was when you caught that pass against Kentucky. Our offense changes week to week, game to game, and uh, I'm, I'm always looking for a new ball play if I can find one. He never really had a playbook. He would write down the game plan each week on white typing paper. He'd handwrite it. He'd tell you, give it to you, tell you to fold it up and put it in your back pocket. So whenever you're just sitting around doing nothing, you could pull out your ball plays and study them. Doug Johnson told me that he'd be walking down the hallway all of a sudden Spurrier goes, hey, Doug, Doug, Doug. Get up there and write something down. He goes, all right. So, I mean, there aren't that many coaches like that, that that'll, that'll change a play like in the hallway. As you can see, these guys are a big cover two team. Nobody else in America does that. Everybody else has it, you know, on the computer, this nice, you know, big, thick notebook. But no, it was just on two, two or three sheets of paper stapled together. A little bit of blitzing. In football, there's a good play for every defense. There is a good play. If there wasn't a good play against that defense, all the teams would run that defense all the time. I think part of what he brought was just this willingness to do something different. I mean, so much of it was this idea of, you know, running the ball and dominating the line of scrimmage and then maybe getting a pass downfield based off that. But... His idea was there's a lot of space down the field. Let's try to get there. He would never script practice. He'd stand over there and he'd say, uh, show me cover two over there. And he'd just, he'd just run his plays, almost drawing it up in the dirt. Typical practice, a lot of plays, a lot of snaps, a lot of repetition. I don't think it was very complex. We, we made it look... <laughs> you know, the illusion of sophistication of sorts. Spurrier was different in just about every which way imaginable. From his theories of offense all the way to his ever casual dress code in the team offices and on the sideline. But in 1993, he'd run up against a new coach in the conference who came with an impressive family pedigree, Terry Bowden, who inherited an Auburn team coming off two straight five-win seasons and soon to be placed on probation. Coach Bowden's 93 team came out of nowhere. The conditions of their probation prevented the Tigers from appearing on TV. 
but the team still created havoc in the SEC. We were starting to get some headlines. We were cracking into the top 25. I think it really started when we uh, defeated Florida. We were 6-0. They were a top five team. We won a shootout with them, which was very difficult to do against a Florida offense and Steve Spurrier. That's when we put our mark on the national headlines. Auburn finished 1993 11-0, a win over defending national champion Alabama, only making the journey all the sweeter. No national championship, no SEC title, but a team no one could beat. Two seasons later, Peyton Manning knew the stakes when he traveled to Legion Field. Yes, it was a little different. The Vols were playing Alabama on the second Saturday in October instead of the third, with divisional realignment altering the schedule. But it was still Tennessee against Alabama. Alabama had beaten us. I certainly understood the importance of the game. I've always told my kids, you live to play in big games. That's what you want to do. You want to play in big games. And that, not necessarily a championship game, a Super Bowl and everything, but games that just mean stuff to a lot of people. Bama in 1995. That was a game-changing moment for Tennessee football. They had been under Alabama's thumb for a long time. Tennessee to throw on first down. Right over the middle. They've got Kent open, and he breaks him into the secondary. He needs a block, and he couldn't go the distance. Touchdown, Tennessee. 80 yards. To Manning, playing Alabama was more than a chance to just beat an arch rival. More than a chance to take his place in history. It was also a chance to avenge one of his father's toughest defeats, the one-point loss to Bear Bryant's Crimson Tide in 1969 that had left Archie in tears on the field. They won that game handily. I remember my lead on the game story that night was, who knew beating Alabama could be that easy? The celebration has started here in The victory began a seven-game win streak for the volunteers in the rivalry. That's always been a special time, waiting on your son after a game. Um, now it's, <laughs> you know, it's either good or it's bad, you know. Fortunately, like for Peyton and Eli, most of the time it was good. They won more than they lost. Great memories. Of course, two other fierce SEC rivals are Florida and Georgia, who began facing off in Jacksonville, Florida in 1915. 
a neutral site that eventually became part of the tradition. But in 1995, when the stadium there was being refurbished, the game moved to the Bulldogs' home in Athens. Spurrier was looking through the media guide. Hey, nobody's ever scored half a hundred in that, in that stadium on Georgia. Let's, let's go do that. Warming up. Hey, you know, it hurt. No one's never scored 50 here in Athens in this place, huh? Okay. All right, all right. Hey, keep running around, keep going. So basically, you know, he'll indirectly tell you, like, hey, we've been put on a show today. He would never tell the media that. He would act surprised when they scored 50. <laughs> Even yeah. though that was his goal. By the way, he's a little vindictive, if you haven't noticed. Like Steve Spurrier, Georgia coach Ray Goff was a former quarterback, now coaching at his alma mater. Steve was a great football coach. And he could spread the field as good as anybody around. Touchdown, Florida! Doing things that people hadn't seen or we hadn't done in this conference before. It doesn't take them long, folks. Don't blink. You can't sleep on them. There was something about the Georgia game that you could sense mattered a little more to him. Steve had beat you as bad as he could, and especially us. He hates them with a passion. Spurrier's hatred of Georgia went way back, back to his days as the Gators' quarterback. He wanted to be Georgia because Georgia had cost him the SEC in 66. We were 7-0 and and uh, went to Georgia, and they kicked our tails up and down the Gator Bowl. That's my most regretful game as a player. It left a bitter taste in Steve Spurrier's mouth. A taste made all the more bitter that day and forever after when Georgia, holding a 10-point lead with just a few seconds left, didn't take a knee to end the game. Oh, he will never forget. He'll never forget. He doesn't ever forget things like that, ever. Chris Doring grabs another. They knew what was going to happen. They knew they had the talent to really compete. I didn't know why he did what, you know, run the score up on us like he did, but, you know, that's his prerogative and that's his team. When you played people that you knew you should beat, As pressure throws the bullet, you don't run them in the ground and throw the ball deep and things of that nature. I mean, you just don't do that. I mean, I don't. I didn't, and maybe that was my fault. And McGriff. Well, Steve liked everybody to hate him. He thought if Georgia people hated him, it was he's doing his job. <laughs> you know, people thought that we ran it up, but really it was just in the normal course of the game, we, we happened to score 52 that day. Can't relax at all against this team. They put complete pressure on your defense, running and throwing the football. He beat us five, six years in a row when I was here. He did a great job. I got fired. Goff's firing came at the end of that 1995 season. 
a third straight mediocre campaign for the Bulldogs. I learned that you'll know who your true friends are when you walk out the door. You got a lot of playmates, but uh, when you walk out that door, you'll find out who your friends are. Even years later, Goff's emotions were a reminder that not every tale of an SEC star returning to his alma mater to coach has had a happy ending. Once I got fired, I was kind of an outcast, so to speak, in my mind. Nobody ever told me that, nobody ever said that. But I felt like I'm not wanted. The 1995 college football season would culminate with number two Florida facing number one Nebraska for the national championship in the Fiesta Bowl. We feel like, you know, we can do anything we want in a phase of the game. You want to take your best players against their best, and if they want to line up one-on-one, then, uh, you know, we'll see who can, who's a better player. I had no doubt in my mind that we were going to go out there, throw the ball up and down the field, score 50 on them and win a national title in my last game as a Gator. I wish I could have that day back, man. There they got him! There's the safety! We ran into a team that pretty much pushed us around. Quarterback draw, Tommy Frazier. Goodbye, Tommy Frazier! We never expected to lose much less in that manner. Definitely not like that. You can't even say we're humble. Like, we were embarrassed. We got they, they just covered us. Uh, they outcoached us, outplayed us. So the loss was devastating and left Spurrier and the Gators to return to Gainesville, knowing how far they still were from a national title. Tradition, culture, Heritage, they're everything in the SEC. You couldn't imagine Auburn without its war eagle. Mississippi State without its cowbells. Ole Miss without hottie toddy. Even Tennessee without the checkerboarded end zones. And when Georgia Athletic Director Vince Dooley found out that his team's football stadium would be a host venue in the 1996 Olympic Games, he had to find a way to handle a tricky complication. We got the medal games of soccer, which were really big. They come and look at it and says, you know, we gotta take the hedges out. Well, these are royal hedges to the loyal Georgia people and how to handle the decision it required a lot of thought, innovative thought. I told one of the agricultural pathologists, see if you can see anything wrong with those. And they came back and said, you know, uh, they have nematodes. Nematodes, worms, they'd be Dooley's unlikely savior in the decision to pull the hedges that had been planted in 1929. This is a very historic uh, day in the great and wonderful tradition of Sanford Stadium, and that is the start of the installation of uh, Hedges II. 
Vince cagely figured out how we could take cuttings from the existing hedges, sons and daughters of the, <laughs> the hedges, plant them and have a second generation. And I think they accepted that uh, for the most part. Some 200 miles north of Athens, at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, Knoxville, Tennessee is the home of venerable Neyland Stadium. Named after General Robert Neyland, the legendary coach who led the Vols to nine undefeated regular seasons and four national championships. Neyland designed expansions to the stadium itself, which has since been further augmented to hold over 102,000 people. At my first NFL game, we were playing in the old RCA Dome, and I was standing next to another player who went to a small school in Kentucky, and he was kind of saying, look at, look at this crowd, look at all these people around, and I kind of I said, it's about half of what I played in my, all my games in college. And one of the biggest games of Peyton Manning's college career came in September 1996 when the Florida Gators came to town. I think the hype for that game might have been the biggest I ever experienced. This was number two against number four. You had Peyton Manning, Danny Werfel. Steve Spurrier, you had the marquee names. Tennessee ranked second in the country. In the 90s, the Florida-Tennessee rivalry, that was appointment television. I can't imagine a bigger game anywhere. Now the Gators to join their captains, 2-0, ranked fourth in the nation. As if the SEC hadn't been rich enough with rivalries, realignment had promptly created another one the Gators and the Vols. It became one of the biggest rivalries we had. But whoever lost that game was, was just a hard road to come back and win the SEC. The storyline had been set the season before. Werfel dropping back, looking, looking, now firing for a corner in the left part of the end zone. It's a touchdown! Mike Hilliard! Over the middle, he's got a touchdown! Mike Hilliard! He's got the hat trick! Oh, my! And is open Hilliard. I've never seen anything like it. It's touchdown after touchdown after touchdown after touchdown. Warfel running for his life, but he throws it to the end zone and another touchdown. Danny Warfel had ended up with six touchdown passes and a TD run for good measure. Spurrier said after the 95 game, I thought we could score about every time we got the ball. As it turned out, we almost did. We would have a week off usually before we would play Tennessee. And in 96, on that weekend off, he made all the coaches go over to Crescent Beach. And uh, Coach Stoops says that he and Spurrier were floating in the ocean. And he looks over at him, he says, Stoopsy, think those Tennessee coaches are out floating in the ocean right now? <laughs> Elijah Williams getting the work early and into the secondary. Florida gets the ball first, marches down the field. They've got fourth and 10 on the Tennessee 35. The offensive unit is still on the field. It was too far for a field goal, and it was too close to punt. So what do you do? Well, let's throw it 15, 20 yards down there and see if we can make first down. There is the snap. Werfel dropping back. We had Ike 
running about a 15-yard middle, and Redell was clearing through the post. My mindset was get the safety out of the plate. I'm watching Ike, and he's pretty well covered. But on every play, you're checking the safety, and if the safety cheats, there's space behind him. And I looked at the safety. He was just sitting. Then I saw his head go up. And then all of a sudden, I see the ball heading toward the end zone. And that's when I looked back. I was like, oh, man, the ball in there. Going for it all, down in the end zone. End zone foul. It's caught, and a touchdown. Oh, my, Redale Anthony. I wasn't expecting it was supposed to go to Ike. Redale Anthony. But Danny took a shot. Oh, my. It was vintage Florida, explosive and unstoppable. Play action, Werfel, end zone, touchdown, touchdown Florida. Receivers open everywhere. Across the middle, and the ball caught. Dinks. Looks left side, caught, touchdown. Runs. It looked like fun and felt fun, almost like a game of touch. Werfel looking for more, flag down, pass caught, touchdown, Jacquez Green. And with Werfel and Spurrier, it was one quarterback fulfilling the mission of another. It was the fun and gun. It was wide open. Steve Spurrier changed the way the game was played in the SEC because everybody knew if we score 24 points, we're not going to beat Spurrier's team. Florida was squarely in the hunt for a national championship, while Peyton Manning had to reckon with a third straight loss to the Gators. I'm proud of our team. I thought we played hard, and I've had better days. When you start your coaching career in college, you say, boy, wouldn't it be something if someday I had a team, I was on a team that was number one. So even though we have not been number one at the end of the year, uh, at least uh, if we never are, we can say, hey, we've been number one a week or two anyway. Towards the end of that 96 run, we would make our walk to our practice facility, and there started to be more and more people wanting autographs. And they'd sit out there with their helmets and their, their pennants and everything, asking for autographs. And, and one day uh, before practice, he never called us up before practice, but one day before practice, he called us all up and he said, shoot, you guys, when you're walking by those guys wanting all those autographs, you, you don't have to sign that stuff. No, you don't just, just say, go Gators, go Gators and go on to practice. Danny, Danny, you don't have to sign that stuff. No, just go Gators and, and come on down to practice. You don't have to do that. And he goes, you know what they do when, when they get your autograph, Danny? When, when they, they get your autograph on those helmets? You know what they do? They sell it. They take it to the mall and they sell it. And I was like, it's all right. Yeah, he goes, and you know what they do with the money when they sell it, Danny? They buy drugs. And we're like, what? And he goes, oh, hell, maybe they don't, but they could. <laughs> At the end of November came number one Florida against number two Florida State. The winner set to have the inside track on the national championship. I remember the Tallahassee Democrat headline, and it was literally this big across the top said, war. That's how serious the game was. Well, Danny took a beating. They were teeing off on Danny. Still, one week later, the Gators would rebound, beating Alabama in the SEC championship game. That month of December 96 and kind of going into January, it's a blur. 
I mean, so many things happened, so many emotions, everything back to back. The winner of the 1996 Heisman Trophy is awarded to Danny Warfield. The highlights of December 1996 included Werfel's Heisman Trophy, won on the strength of 39 touchdown passes during the season. The award was also a boost of confidence before the Gators' rematch with the Seminoles, a rematch that called for a new strategy. That week, Coach Burry hated it. He hated it. See his offense finally go to the shotgun. Finally, Steve went to the shotgun. He rarely ran it. He felt like it disrupted the timing that was so critical on the passing routes. Danny Warfel should not be treated like a tackling dummy because he plays quarterback against FSU. I've never seen Steve get this personal. You know, I like him, Dad Gummit, and I like his family. And, uh, I just, I just think it's got. Well, I do. I think it's just gotten a little personal. They don't need to do that. I don't know how personal he takes it or not, but I don't think he can tell me what to say. Uh, I'm, we're not in the ACC. The national championship is the prize in the Nokia Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. Into the end zone, Hilliard. Werfel lets it go again. play there you know people still talk about it to the day Danny put it on my body and I jumped I didn't fall I landed on my feet I'm like oh he's about to get hit somehow he stopped somehow his knees didn't break it didn't register until you saw it again one of the greatest uh, receiver plays I think I've ever seen instinctive blessed that game was over when it started because that team was not going to lose again. After the Gators' brutal loss to Nebraska a year earlier, Florida had found a way to take the final step forward and done it with a vintage performance from the head ball coach's attack. To be able to put up 50 in a game of that magnitude is a, it's a pretty big deal. That moment, I don't know how to describe it. I almost remember feeling like I was at the end of a really good movie. Whole game is over. The Florida Gators have staked their claim. That season, you wouldn't believe it if you if you told someone it happened. But we got to live it that year, and it couldn't have ended better. Florida football a program that had begun in 1906, had its first ever national championship, something for all of Gator Nation to chomp about. As a youngster growing up and when I first got into coaching, and I think maybe even a lot of you fans, one day hoped you could come to the ballpark and chant, we're number one. Do it for yourself, do it for this team, do it for those Gators up in heaven. We're number one. We're number one. We feel very fortunate, very blessed. 
to have one national championship. I got one in my career, and I'm certainly okay with that. He changed the paradigm for SEC football. This was a defense run-oriented league. Throwing the ball around the yard, as he likes to say, it was something that, co that player coaches didn't do back then. Along with his one national championship, Steve Spurrier would win six SEC titles and to his delight, go 11-1 against Georgia in his 12 seasons with the Gators before heading off to the NFL. There's Bear, Ben Stooley, Nealon, Saban, but nobody did it as interestingly as Steve Spurrier. Nobody was as quotable, nobody was as funny, nobody was as controversial. It was part of the reason why Gator fans during that run just got so spoiled because not only were we winning championships, but we were being entertained at the same time by the head ball coach. Oh, I think he's definitely nostalgic. He misses it a ton and has an incredible memory. Especially since he retired, he's got more time. I'll remember a message at, hey Danny, yeah, coach here. Did you know how many points we averaged at home games in 1996? <laughs> That's right, over 50. Have a good day. <laughs> Being a quarterback, I miss it. It was my life. You know, I was one of those guys who loved to practice, who loved to watch film, who loved to just throw. Even when I wasn't at practice, I would go home and throw. I would just throw all day. It's probably why I had two shoulder surgeries. <laughs> when Bill Curry was let go as Kentucky's head coach, they had a kid who could throw the ball named Tim Couch. But they needed a coach who'd let him throw. My freshman year was 1996, and Bill Curry was the head coach, and, and we were running the option. And, uh, you know, it was bad, man. My first start ever was on the road in, at the Swamp in Gainesville. Man, they beat us so bad, I don't think we crossed midfield. I remember thinking, I don't know if I can play at this level. And, you know, it just turned out I was in, you know, the absolute worst system I could possibly be in for me. So Kentucky Athletic Director C.M. Newton went looking for a new head coach. C.M. called Steve Spurrier. C.M. told me, he asked Steve, uh, you know, I'm looking for the next Steve Spurrier, to which Spurrier replied, there ain't one. But I think CM thought he had found the next Steve Spurrier in Hal Mummy. Under Hal Mummy's air raid offense, Couch lit it up for two years at the University of Kentucky. Everyone said, you know, you can't run an offense like that in the SEC. Like, you know, the athletes are too good on defense. You're going to get your quarterback killed. You can't draw back and throw it 50 times a game. And we said, well, we're going to do it. No question, when it comes to offensive football, uh, Hal Mum is one of the brightest minds ever. We didn't have a playbook. Coach would literally just give me a formation, and I would walk up to the line, I would see the defense, and I had a wristband on, you know, had five, six, seven plays versus every coverage. You know, he would just kind of give me that, like, it's on you, just call it. Tim Couch not only had set all kinds of passing records in high school, but had done it in a tiny Appalachian town in eastern Kentucky. And there's nothing that Kentucky fans love more 
on the basketball court or the football field than a kid who stays home to go to school. The people there are diehard Kentucky fans. Supported the team their whole lives and, and to have a you know a homegrown kid go wear the blue and white, it makes them cheer even harder for Kentucky. Not a lot of kids come out of there that go play Division I football. And I was part of the recruitment of Tim Couch. He threw the ball better than any high school kid I've ever seen in my life. He came in with that precision. Even though they won more than they lost, there were no championships. With the high watermark coming in a win against Alabama for the first time since 1922. It seemed like as soon as he crossed the line, I looked up and the whole stadium is coming down on the field. People are jumping over the wall, they're tearing the goalposts down, and it's just one of those moments that, as a college quarterback, that's what you dream about. Al Mummy left Kentucky in 2000, but the innovations he brought to the game can be seen all across the college football landscape today. I will. <laughs> See you. The winter before Mummy debuted in Kentucky, down in Tennessee, a quarterback who'd already established himself as one of the all-time SEC greats over three seasons had a decision to make. They're trying to get you come out of class with the record, first time ever. I'd graduated in three years. I was going to have my degree. There was a little loophole that we found that if you were set to graduate in the spring of your junior year, you were allowed to wait up until a month before the draft to decide. Oh, man. Paulia? Yeah. Yeah, I took him. You cannot overstate how distraught the Tennessee fan base was. I don't think many people really thought he would come back. Kind of sitting there going, wow, you just finished on a, on a high note in your bowl game. Uh, sounds like you're going to be a high pick. This probably makes sense. So what does he have to gain by coming back? I go back to campus. I'm working out with the team. I go on spring break with my friends, going to baseball games. Basketball. I mean, I just, and I kind of said, you know, I, I enjoy this college experience. I don't want to be 50 years old and think what would my senior year in college would have been like. I mean, when I make decisions, I kind of write the pros and cons out and the pluses and minuses and you pick one and you don't look back. Uh, uh, as General Patton used to say, you make a decision and you do it like hell. It was around March sometime. I just called Coach Fulmer and said, I'm going to have a press conference tomorrow. And I kind of made him sweat a little bit. Everybody is waiting. He's getting a nice hair as he steps to the microphone. I was on the road uh, to a basketball game somewhere. on I, I was on I-40. And it was, of course, it was on the radio live. I made up my mind, and I don't expect to ever look back. I'm going to stay at the University of Tennessee. I nearly ran off the road because I was, I was that surprised. To an outsider, the decision made little sense. Passing up millions of dollars to play another season and risk everything in the process. But Peyton Manning had grown up inside the SEC. 
He dreamed of being part of it and then lived out those dreams with the Vols. After something just felt right when he'd visited Knoxville as a high school recruit, sure enough, something still felt right four years later. And, he decided, there was still nothing more important than that. It was one of the best decisions I ever made. That just created a bond with, with the, the Tennessee family. 3.30 Eastern, every Saturday in the fall, for the first time, the SEC, with all its rivalries, its traditions, and its splendor, would be on stage each week in front of CBS's national audience. CBS had lost the NFL to Fox. CBS really needs something. They had a vacuum, so to speak, so we were once again lucky to an extent. CBS picks the SEC away from the College Football Association for $85 million, which seemed like a billion at the time. Who knows whether that's going to be worth it or not? Long range, it gave us an opportunity to have something that, that no other conference had. We had our network. That national exposure through that every week reinforcement provided this clear call for America to watch. By that 98 season, Peyton Manning might have been gone, but the Rocky Top spirit in Tennessee was as alive as ever. Rocky Top, in 2015, the song was named by USA Today the number one fight song in all of college football. The season of, of 98 was so special. We had lost a lot of really good players from the 97 SEC championship team. We lost guys that was not just leaders on the field. They were leaders in the locker room. We was ranked number 10 going into the season. That was the lowest ranking I have ever been a part of. And after Tennessee won their season opener by just one point, a huge test came in their second game against number two Florida, who'd beaten the Vols in five straight meetings. And as Coach Spurrier liked to say, you have to beat the team every once in a while for it to be a rivalry. My senior class only lost the one team in SEC in four years, and it was Florida three times. Really, that 98 team we had was very similar to the 96 team that won it all. But on that night, Tennessee forced five Gator turnovers. You look at the defense, they carried us earlier in that season because they were good from the first snap of the first game. Travis Taylor, he lost the football. The game went to overtime, tied at 17. To give Tennessee the lead in overtime. That kick is right down the middle. Then Florida had their turn. From 32 yards, that kick is... 
No good! Tennessee wins! To see the student section and the fans rip that goalpost down and take it from the stadium and walk down the strip Cumberland Avenue. A CBS camera that was tied to the goalpost ended up in the Tennessee River. That's giving me goosebumps thinking about it right now because that's what it's all about. It was dangerous and scary, and there were so many happy, probably a little bit intoxicated people going out there. You got that Florida monkey off your back now? That monkey's gone too. <laughs> the game caught the attention of all of college football and put the spotlight on the quarterback who'd replaced Peyton Manning, Junior T. Martin. To say that I wasn't a little worried about not playing with Peyton, I would be lying. Yeah, I was a little worried. Number three. Just like Manning, T. Martin could recite General Neyland's seven maxims, something his coach, Philip Fulmer, could appreciate. Being a native Tennessean and a former UT player himself. All year long, they had this little chip on their shoulder. And I've never seen a, a group of kids rally around a young man named T. Martin like, like they did. He's a junior, but he hadn't played very much because the previous year, Tennessee was uh, trying to campaign Peyton for the Heisman. So T. Martin didn't get to play a whole lot. T. Martin was from Mobile, Alabama. He'd grown up in poverty and lost by his count a dozen friends to the streets along the way. You come through what he came through, just playing football wasn't that hard. They were not going to let T. Martin fail. Our thing was, just go out there and show him you can play. Be you, don't try to be paid. Martin's four touchdown passes in the Vols' third game, a route over Houston, were impressive. And seven weeks later, Tennessee would be the top-ranked team in the country at 8-0, entering a home game against 10th-ranked Arkansas. And Tennessee was laying an egg. The emotion for us just wasn't where it had been. I think we just thought we were going to win. When the Vols trailed by two points with less than two minutes to go, Tennessee's dream season looked to be all but over. Tennessee fans were leaving. Now here's this undefeated championship season going down the drain. As T. Martin's coming off, Billy Ratliff runs on the field, and I hear him. T, keep your helmet on. We're going to get the ball right back. Arkansas, really, all they had to do was run out the clock. 147 remaining. Sterner lost the Call it luck. You need some breaks to go your way. The Arkansas game, somebody was smiling down on us. Henry, touchdown, Tennessee! 
The Clint Sterner fumble, that's what it's called. Certainly Clint Sterner's never had to buy a drink in the state of Tennessee <laughs> since then. And then it was the first ever BCS National Championship game. Number two, Florida State against number one, Tennessee. A clash of two unbeatens. It was the kind of matchup Brigadier General Robert Neeland would have relished. We have an opportunity in front of us tonight that doesn't come around every day. As I told you, 47 years since Tennessee football players have pulled on that orange shirt and had a chance to compete for a national championship. 11 on 11, man on man, heart versus heart, draw that sand, that line in the sand. Now Martin back to throw it, pumps it, now lets it go, he's got it. To me, if someone plays you man, they're saying I'm better than you and you can't get open. The guy on the offensive end is being disrespected. They just simply was not Champ Bailey. They were not Fernando Bryant. Like, they're not these guys that I've played against and had to earn my keep against in the SEC. I think I could get open on those guys. It'll be third down, about nine, eight and a half. T called that play and he looked me dead in the eye and basically told me I'm throwing it to you. That ball going down the sidelines is caught. Here is Price. Yes, touchdown. The national champion is clad in the big orange. I remember taking my helmet off and throwing it as high as I could. That moment is the greatest moment I ever had in football. You go to midfield. All the cameras flashing. I get chill bumps just talking about it. Because when you look back on that season, you wasn't supposed to be here is what they said, but you are here. And there was another undeniable sense in the afterglow that night of the SEC setting itself apart from every other conference. Three different teams now had won national titles over the course of the 90s. In that instant, I felt my father, who had passed away in 1989, I felt his presence there. Tonight, you represented the state of Tennessee, and the men that have worn that orange shirt, it's taken 47 years to get it back in Knoxville, Tennessee, but tonight, you got the national championship. Hip, hip, As the 1990s came to a close, there would be new faces in the headlines surrounding the conference. Eli Manning, Peyton's younger brother, debuting at his father's alma mater, Ole Miss. Lou Holtz, looking to resuscitate a South Carolina team that was coming off a one in 10 season. And LSU, responding to a three win season by turning to a rising star coach out of the Big Ten who'd transformed the landscape of college football. <laughs> 